Welcome, welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. My name is Reverend Mari, or Mari Sol, if you're daring, caballero. And I'm so happy to see each and every one of you. Thanks for coming on this very, very cloudy day. We also like to start out each Sunday saying that we are very proud to come from a long heritage of saying that we each contain within us a little spark of the divine. So we greet the holy amongst us by turning to our neighbors and saying hello. Please join me in the words by which we light our chalice. They're found in your orders of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. My name is Ethan Love, and I'm honored to be your lay leader this morning. Our call to worship this morning is by Richard S. Gilbert. We meet on holy ground. We meet on holy ground, brought into being as life encounters life, as personal histories merge into the communal story, as we take the pride and pain of our companions as separate selves become community. How desperate is our need for one another, our silent beckoning to our neighbors, our invitations to share life and death together, our welcome into the lives of those we meet, and their welcome into our own. May our souls capture this treasured life. May our spirits celebrate our meaning in this time and in this space where we meet on holy ground. That we draw wisdom from so many traditions and our faith is but a single gem. Well, what brings it together in unity? So many things. Where do I begin? Well, we tend to begin with our mission statement each Sunday. We say it together to remind ourselves why we're here. Please join me. We gather in community to nourish souls transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading is titled, How to Give a Blessing, by Kathleen McTeague. We're asked a dozen times a day, how are you? Most of the time, it's not a real question and doesn't invite a genuine answer. It's more like an alternative, hello, and we're well-trained in the ritual response. Fine, thanks. But every once in a while, we're asked this question when things are really not fine at all. At those times, when we're walking around in a little bubble of anxiety or sorrow, something inside us can suddenly balk at giving out the standard meaningless answer. We're too hungry for authentic word, too raw to pretend that things are okay. The morning after my father died, following three days and nights of an around-the-clock vigil with my siblings, I had to go to the grocery store to buy a few things for dinner. When I arrived at the checkout counter and the clerk distractedly said, How are you? My brain went blank. I couldn't say fine or even okay. I wasn't okay. 
I wasn't even in my right mind. I was numb, sleep-deprived, and saturated with the mystery of our mortality. That's the only explanation I have, because to my horror, I found myself blurting out a real honest answer. I'm not so good, I said. My dad died last night. With his hands filled with apples, chicken, and bread, the poor clerk turned red and started to stammer. The people behind me looked longingly at checkout lines they should have chosen, the ones that would have not placed them in earshot of the too-much-information lady. I was mortified at having revealed to an unprepared stranger just how not fine I was. Everyone froze in this moment of uncomfortable paralysis, except the young man bagging our groceries, who had Down syndrome. He stopped moving completely, looked straight at me, and with great emphasis said, I bet you feel really sad about that. The simplicity of that little expression of kindness and solidarity allowed both the clerk and me to escape. Yes, I do. Thank you, I said to him. And then I was able to walk out with my groceries and not feel quite so much as though as, a, as, as if I had undressed in public. The young man bagging groceries, I thought, in, excuse me, in thought, speech, and movement was considered disabled. Yet he was the only one able to offer what counted in that particular moment. He knew how to give a blessing. And now I invite you to please join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. There's so much... Dear God, dear Spirit, of many names, bringer of life and comfort and community, there's so much in this world, in this community, in ourselves, deserving and in need of a blessing. Be with us as we send blessings inward outward to the person next to us, outward to folks that make us angry and drive us crazy, outward to people in Paris and Beirut and Baghdad whose sense of safety has been shattered. People right here who can't remember how it feels to feel safe, to feel loved, to feel cared for, satiated. Our hearts go out to them, our hearts go out to each other. As we offer blessings of celebration and of grief when people need it including ourselves. We pray these things in the name of all that is good and is holy. Amen. And now, during our musical meditation, I invite you to take those things that you're carrying inside of you 
those instances of grief, those concerns, those joyful thoughts and events from this week. And if you feel so moved, light a candle, holding that thought so that the flame can take that thought literally as well as metaphorically, up into the very air that we share, that we breathe together, so that we can breathe in your joys, your sorrows, and you need not celebrate or mourn alone. May it be so. Amen. This past summer, First UU was pleased to host a Ramadan fast-breaking dinner, or iftar, with our new, mostly Turkish, Muslim friends of the Dialogue Institute. They did the cooking, and we took care of the venue and of, I think, a lot of the eating. I can speak for myself. Members of this church were able to engage in rich conversation while enjoying delicious homemade fare. After the dinner, I spoke with some members of our church who said that some Muslims uh, at their table, upon hearing that we have no central holy scripture, asked, well, then how do you know how to be good? This is a great question, as it's way more complex than it initially sounds. We may catch ourselves thinking in judgmental, kind of Islamophobic terms about um, and, and categorizing the person who asked the question as mindlessly obedient to their faith. But that would be short-sighted because, of course, those with a holy book and religious convic- conviction use their conscience as well, uh, informed by the guidance of Scripture, of course. But what informs our conscience? What does? It's a great question. In truth, what doesn't, right? We have the influence of the world's sacred texts, indigenous wisdom, freedom fighters, politicians, music, heck, even sitcoms and comic books could have an impact on the ethical decision-making of UUs at any given time. But as we heard during the call to worship, thank you, Ethan, that was beautiful, we learned so much from each other as our separate selves become community, as we co-create this otherwise unremarkable building, and this otherwise unremarkable hour into holy ground and a holy time. This week, I sat on a panel of leaders from various faith traditions for a class of high schoolers in a cooperative homeschooling program. One of the students asked a question that I'm still thinking about. What does someone, she asked this of the whole panel, what does someone have to believe to be a member of your religion? After explaining that we're a creedless faith, I said that that if we did some kind of test of faith for UUs, which we don't, it might be that UUs must believe in justice, kindness, and curiosity. As with our Muslim guest's question, this distillation of our faith may seem overly simplified at first glance. But while many of us may more or less agree that justice 
means working toward true equity for all people, okay, regardless of gender, age, or national, nation of origin, ethnicity, etc. And curiosity here means a lifelong desire to explore and learn, right, about our world, about ourselves, about, you know, all of all of the mystery of the, of the universe, we should remain curious and be lifelong seekers. That's what makes us you, you. But strangely enough, kindness is practiced so incredibly differently by you, yous. Well, okay, by every population group, really, but let's explore our own glass house before we go a stone throw in. So seeking to tease apart a universally, a universally applicable rule for how kindness might be put into practice, I consulted scripture. By this, I mean I sought the divine prophetic wisdom of the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin. The lyrics of her famous uh, cover of Otis Redding's song, Respect did not originally include the most important and, dare I say, instructive words. Miss Franklin herself added the line, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me, when she recorded it. So, we may not often pause to contemplate the significance of this line. I know that... I just want to always, when I hear that, I just always want to get to the suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me, suck it to me, you know, that part. <laughs> but truly, that line, it goes beyond our golden rule that we've been taught as kids. That golden rule level uh, uh, of directives for kindness, for, for behaving with kindness, in which we're told to, you know, do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Yes, perhaps it was this Motown influence that prompted Dr. Milton Bennett, who holds a doctorate in intercultural communication and sociology and a master's degree in psycholinguistics. Wow, never knew that field existed. He coined the term the platinum rule in the 70s. Do unto others as they would have you do unto them. I've talked about this in the pulpit before. It's amazing to me that we didn't grow up with that instead of uh, any. Aretha Franklin doesn't want her fella to give her the respect that he sees fit. That's the problem to begin with. Aretha Franklin wants her fella, in fact, expects him to find out what the word respect means to her. The platinum rule may provoke some anxiety from you use who like to regard ourselves as do-gooders, liberals, and well-educated, well-cultured folks. What if we make a mistake in guessing how someone wants to be treated? We might think, I want to be hospitable and kind to new people I meet, but what if someone from a culture or background that I am not a certified expert in comes up to shake my hand? <laughs> what if I make a mistake? 
Meg, I think, mentioned a few sermons ago that this is probably a, a cardinal sin amongst you use that, that making a public mistake. <laughs> it's, it's not something I enjoy either. Before we find ourselves spiraling into the despair that the thought of uh, not being right 100% of the time may provoke, let's go back to the sage advice of our diva. She says, find out what it means to me. Find out what it means to me. Not guess at what respect means to me. The easiest way to find out is to learn as much as we can about people different from ourselves, and when all else fails, we can ask. Research increasingly shows how much we tend to hold on to and rely on on the initial first impressions that we make in the first few seconds upon meeting someone. It is in these crucial few seconds that if we're if we're um, to be full practitioners of kindness, truly, we've got to do our absolute best to convey it then in a tiny few seconds. So no pressure at all. Actually, it's not so difficult to demonstrate kindness and respect in a few seconds. Here are a few tips that I've picked up, and I'm sure in our collective wisdom, you all will add more, have more to add, as kindness, hospitality, and respect will surely be an ongoing conversation here, because above any other congregation I've served in any capacity, this congregation cares about its welcome. So, tip number one, find out the person's name. (laughs) This also sounds more basic than is necessary to state, but as Someone who has a name that is unusual to many non-Spanish speakers and people who have had not much contact with Latinos in general, I can assure you it is not basic. We should genuinely be interested in learning someone's name and pronouncing it as they do. Many people here, for example, still pronounce, to use myself as an example, still pronounce Marisol, as if it rhymes with parasol. It's not marisol, in fact, and they pronounce the shortened form of it, madi, as if it rhymes with atari or calamari, when in fact it's not mari, um, it's madi. So for the record, my name is marisol, or madi for short. It rhymes with body, soul, think holistic. <laughs> It is interesting that kids tend to take someone's word for it when they pronounce a name, regardless of how it's spelled. It, all the kids will say Reverend Madi, but it's so hard we, when we see a spelling that trips our brains up as adults. When I was in college, I worked at a daycare center that had a baby whose Irish mother named her A-O-I-F. I think she just wanted to get all the vowels in. Apparently, the word is pronounced Aoife. Such a cute little girl, such a cute little name. But who would have ever guessed? Aoife, (laughs) A-O-I-F-E. 
Even if we must ask several times, even if it takes practice, rhyming words, note-taking, or mnemonic devices, demonstrating a sincere effort to call someone by their name right away is a level of respect that demonstrates our belief that all people are worthwhile. The child actress, Quavengene Wallace, whose name is a combination of her mother and father's names, recently performed the role of Little Orphan Annie in a remake of the movie, movie musical Annie. And in an interview, a reporter told her that she would just call her Annie, because Quavengene was too hard to say. To which the nine-year-old little girl replied, My name is not Annie, it's Quavengene. So... I just want to throw out there, if we can learn to say Zach Galifianakis and Arnold Schwarzenegger, there is nothing we cannot accomplish with practice. Tip number two, don't assume someone's gender. As a cisgender woman, meaning that I still identify with the the gender identity assigned to me at birth, this is one that can sometimes be really hard to remember. Some people may appear to us to prefer male pronouns, he, him, his, and actually prefer female pronouns, she, her, hers, or vice versa. Some people do not feel particularly drawn to either male or female gendered language and might prefer to use gender neutral, they, them, theirs, or other inventive language. A side note for the hardline grammarians among us. Not only is language by nature intended to change over time, as well as the meanings of words over the course of a language, but there is apparently ancient precedent for the use of they and thou as singular. So there. (laughs) My colleague... Reverend Kathy Ryan Starr recently posted these tips that we wa- Ye, excuse me, Yi Wan Chung uses in their TED Talk. Assume that everyone knows what bathroom they're in. Assume that everyone go that don't excuse me, don't assume that everyone goes by he or she. Honor pronouns if you know them, and if you don't, just use their name. Simple enough. Ask yourself, would I want someone else to ask me that? Example, if you're thinking about asking someone about what body parts they have, would you appreciate that question? Um, Do not tolerate anti-transgender remarks or humor and be open to thinking in entirely new ways. Start thinking outside the gender binary we're taught. These are... These, these take some, some twisting and turning to get used to because it's so ingrained in us. But I, I liked those tips. Okay, so tip number three. These are for, remember, these, we're talking about a couple seconds of interaction with a new person here. Don't assume anything. <laughs> Good rule. I have had some serious cases of foot-in-mouth disease when I have forgotten this rule of thumb. For example, don't assume country of origin. Language, languages spoken, level of income, uh, level of education, um, political or religious affiliation, etc. I mean, I, ha- I myself have been guilty of 
giving and receiving these assumptions. People have come up to me and started speaking in Spanish. Someone even started speaking in Sanskrit one time, which is bizarre because apparently that's not even a language that's used in India. And so assumed I was Indian and spoke an ancient language. Um, and I have gone up to people who I assume are monolingual Spanish speakers and started speaking Spanish and they're like, yeah, so my name is Greg. <laughs> um, basically, I've learned, and I'm sure many of us have the hard way, that I can be wrong about just about any assumption I can make about anyone. The tried and true way of finding out what respect might mean or look like to someone new is to ask questions with all humility and sincerity. Funny. To ask questions with humility and sincerity in an effort to demonstrate respect, that pretty much sums up the distilled version of what I imagined a UU creed or test of faith would be. Someone is a UU if they're committed to justice, curiosity, and kindness. We are given opportunities to practice respectful hospitality every day of our lives. And every Sunday, we're lucky to have visitors and others who have yet, that we have yet to meet, who offer us opportunities to grow as Unitarian Universalists within the first few seconds of introductions. And here we've been thinking that coffee hour is just about bagels and the many flavors of cream cheeses and and coffee, fair trade, and very delicious. And conversation, so very intriguing and deep. But who knew we could count on it on coffee hour? I mean, it's coffee hour. We could count on it as one of our most quintessentially UU spiritual practices. And now... Please join me in the words by which we extinguish our chalice, also found in your orders of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go in peace, knowing that you know how to give a blessing and how to receive one as well. Be a blessing to this hurt and broken world. Be a blessing to each other. Be a blessing to yourself. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.